The following talk was given by Jeffrey Sugan Arnold Roshi during a Fusatsu ceremony at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugen Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. When I was still young, black-haired, endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life, having shaved off my hair and beard, and though my parents wished otherwise and were grieving with tears on their faces, I put on the ochre robe and went forth from the home life into homelessness. In search of what might be skillful, seeking the unexcelled state of sublime peace, I wandered by stages and came to the town of Uruvela. There I saw some delightful countryside with an inspiring forest grove, a clear flowing river with fine, delightful banks and villages for alms going on all sides. The thought occurred to me, how delightful is this countryside with its forest grove and clear flowing water. This is just right for the striving. So I sat down right there thinking, this is just right for striving. This is the Buddha's own words about his departure from home, life to homelessness. And after several years of studying with different teachers and undergoing extreme austerities, he came to this place that we now call Bodhgaya. Just right for striving, he said. So what was that experience of his enlightenment? What did he see that transformed not only him, but the world? Set into motion a body of teachings and practices that have evolved over these many, many hundreds of years through many different countries, through all the different times, down to here. While we have a great debt to the Buddha, while we revere and honor him and his path and his teachings every day, what we truly revere is the opportunity to take up the practice ourselves, to sit down on the same seat, to turn towards the same mind, to realize to have experienced the same suffering and realized the same release from that suffering. He left home because that place which is supposed to be safe and secure was not anymore that for him. We can only think about and reflect on his own words about what it was that motivated him to give up everything that he knew, every certainty, every comfort, his family. And so we speak of in a bodhicitta, we raise bodhicitta, we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment, 
not by a great deal of liturgy, although we have our liturgy, not by devoting all of our attention to him, although we bring our attention to the Buddha, but by doing what we can be reasonably sure he would want us to be doing, which is to be sitting down on this seat, to be turning into our own mind, to be examining and testing and verifying his own teachings and make them our own. When we raise bodhicitta, that in a sense depends on our practice, and the practice that we engage depends on our bodhicitta. Though we have Buddha nature, we experience all the many ways in which we're held back. And so this great aspiration to enlighten our minds, to put down our burdens, to let our life be a great offering to others is, a, is an aspiration and a, a practice of tremendous warmth and joy to be able to do this, to be able to walk this path, to be here now, celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment in this particular way. Throughout the ages, beginning with the Buddha, who provided the example, the primary example of meditation, what we consider the essential practice, he too considered the, considered the essential practice. He practiced it all his life and passed that down to us, as have so many of the great teachers and practitioners. And so it's only fitting that we would celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment by enlightening our minds, by turning into our own zazen in this, what we call a vigil, which is really just a continuous period of practice. And in that way, walking in the footsteps of the Buddha, inspired by the Buddha's example and all those who come before us and those around us. Really, all of that needs to be put into the service of bringing forth our own inspiration. In other words, we have to learn how to inspire ourselves. Because then no matter where we are, no matter what the conditions, we can tap into that. When we practice intensively, something different happens. Everyday practice is essential. That has always been true. And intensive practice has always been essential for those who wanted to really go into the deepest parts of themselves and the Buddha Dharma. That has also been true since the beginning. And we have those periods of intensive practice in various ways in our own training, and this visual is one of those. And so much of our training is um, structured, which is a tremendous practice, right? To enter into a way of practicing, a way of being together, a way of moving through a day, focusing our attention moment after moment, 
on our mindfulness on the moment at hand and always deepening our zazen, always returning to the cushion and letting that structure guide us, move back and forth, in and out, into stillness and activity, and back again. The vigil is different. It's more akin to a hermitage in that the structure really falls away. And so in that way, it's a good practice to just forget about time. You don't really need to keep track of time. And so beginning now, we will just have an open period from now until Sunday morning. The only thing that is scheduled is the meals. We will, some of you will have volunteered to help with getting those meals together, doing some very simple housekeeping, just to keep things going. But the emphasis is really on just this continuous practice through the day, through the night, through the morning, through the day, through the night. Moving in and out, moving back and forth, sitting, standing, walking, prostrations, having a meal, resting. But without anybody to tell you. And so it's, it's good to try and really let go of that, to not have a plan. And to really practice that middle path between the essential, one of the essential aspects of the middle path, which the Buddha described as self-indulgence on the one hand, being driven or guided just by what we want in the moment, what impulse ever, whatever impulse arises. And on the other hand, a more extreme state, state of self-denial. What is that middle way? where we're not indulging our senses, our pleasures, our comfort, but at the same time, we're not soliciting, trying to elicit or seeing something noble and creating unnecessary suffering. How do we practice in such a way that is really coming from within? Because the fact is, is whether we're practicing in a self-guided or a structured context, each of us is always making the choice to be there, even when we forget that. And we might be externalizing that. We are making the choice to be there in that moment, as it must be. But this makes it very clear, it lays it very bare, so we can see. And so we can draw upon our own bodhicitta, we can bring forth our own urgency. We can reflect on what is really important. And so we will be practicing these precautions, which are similar to the session precautions. Staying on the property, no outside contact, silence all the way through. Showing up for the meals, if we want a meal. Helping out with the cleanup, all the things that will just help to keep things functioning. And to really let it be a continuous period of zazen. So we all have forms of practice that we engage in on the cushion. We can practice prostrations in the Buddha hall, in the Sangha house. <clears throat> we can do a little bit of study, but not in a way to distract us. 
We can do silent liturgy, and again in that songhouse or in the Buddha hall, doing meta practices. So if we think of this period of time as focusing, concentrating on zazen, but really recognizing that zazen really should be in all of those different postures that the Buddha presented to us. And to really take that to heart. So that however we're moving, whatever we're doing, it's not really a break, it's not an interruption. It's just a more of a seamless flow that builds, that strengthens each, each moment, each action, each form of practice. <coughs> There will be tea served. There's a schedule downstairs. The bell will be run when that's being offered. And of course, there will be resting. And so whether that is just resting for a bit, resting for a little bit longer, sleeping through the night, the Buddha would often typically practice in the evening, often sitting through the night. The morning was for morning rituals, begging for food, having a meal. The rest of the afternoon and evening was really for practice. And so to really integrate all of these different aspects and to trust that aspect of human nature that is in any endeavor when we engage something intensively, that means we come closer to it, we stay with it longer. Our attention is more keen. And that allows us, because of that attention that is sustained, it allows us to go deeper into that one thing. And in that, for it to open up, doors open. As the mind settles, as the body settles, as the awareness goes deeper in ways that we truly cannot imagine. There are many teachings, there are many poetic phrases and images that try to convey the depths that exist within us that our practice, our miraculous awareness can reveal to us, but those words cannot convey. And the teachings also speak to how the depth of that awareness, what we experience within ourselves is transformative. Changes us. Helps to release those habits, helps us to gain understanding. And even though there are profound teachings that beautifully express that, they too cannot really convey. And that's why more intensive practice has always been important. Because it literally makes things possible that are different than when we practice in an ordinary way. Sometime in the morning, sometime in the evening. Besides the meals, the, 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 the only time that we will really be gathered together in a very conscious way is on Sunday morning when we will meet at 5.30 here and, and all sit together that last half hour, and then end with a little bit of chanting, raising some 
invoking some compassion, and then we'll go down and have breakfast. And then in the morning, later, we'll have a, a service to celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment and uh, a Taisho and so on. You know, these habits that we have are so strong, stronger than we think. We begin to see how strong they are. We encounter that. We see how, they, how much strength they have, how often they arise. We can be very frustrated by that and discouraged, but the teachings understand this very, very profoundly and why they're so strong and, and why they're strong in every person. And everyday practice that we do is very essential at helping to calm and, and sort of transform those habits. But intensive practice is especially important for that very reason, for that, for that same purpose. You know, the mind is tricky. It both deceives us and it enlightens us. Both. And so when we stay in, when we stay inside, stay turning inward, and keep coming back, keep turning inward, things begin to yield, things begin to shift. And we may think to ourselves that there need to be certain conditions, we have to have a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of mental state or emotional state, or a certain amount of something. We almost all have certain ideas about what needs to be present in order to have productive zazen. It's not true. Light can enter in essentially any moment, even when we think it's not possible. When we practice intensively, one of the things that happens is we get tired. <laughs> which actually can help because it's harder to keep those habits up. It's harder to keep those defenses up. It's harder to keep doing the things we tend to do. There's a relaxation that can happen, a softening. And one of the interesting things to, that I wanted to mention is that the Buddha, in his own teaching, recognized, <clears throat> in fact, the shift from his, his, his profound austerity practices, his ascetic practices, that brought him very close to death. If you remember that story, when he took some nourishment and was reflecting, probably on all that he had done thus far, right? He had studied with two very prominent masters, had been invited to share their teaching, lead their communities. He, he did not agree, he did not do that because he knew he was not, he had not freed himself. And then he underwent these, these really profound austerities that are almost hard to imagine and that he describes in great detail with a small cadre of practitioners. And then at that point where he was almost had brought himself to death and he would, had received nourishment from a woman who happened to pass by. And in India, there's actually a stupa at that very point, honoring her for having brought that nourishment to him. 
he began to reflect back and he remembered a time when he was a young person, a boy, and was sitting very unselfconsciously, very peacefully, while the elders were planting or harvesting. And he entered into a very deep state of, com- of, of meditation, quite, you know, of its own. And one of the things that he noticed was how peaceful it was, how pleasurable it was. And he said, maybe that is part of the key here. And so he, after his enlightenment, he, was, he would say that he lived in a state of happiness. He was happy. He was joyful. And that he said that he was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings, which typically were often considered dangerous because they were the places of attachment. And so he did discriminate or he did differentiate between pleasurable feelings that were really sensory based, that were really based in the the senses that do lead to attachment. Delicious tastes, beautiful views, wonderful sounds, and so on. The things we get hung up in, but that are conditioned, that don't last, right? That we grab at and want to hold on to because they don't last. He differentiated between those kinds of pleasant feelings, which he said should be understood as having the danger to just continue to bind us, versus pleasant feelings that were not based in sensory experiences. In other words, that were coming from a very deep place within awareness of meditation, that were not the result of any of his sense organs coming into contact with an object, but were coming out of a very deep experience within. And he saw that and taught that that was actually a positive sign and that should sort of guide us, lead us, that we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should know the difference between wholesome and unwholesome um, pleasures and, and experiences. But that he said that the importance of developing a non-sensual joy he talked about as being really important in our meditation. Because in that, there's like an affirmation that we know ourselves because we're not producing it. We are not creating that. And it's not the result of the normal ways that we experience those, those pleasant experiences. The, the thing is, <laughs> while we can have those kinds of affirmations, really at any point, he had it, that experience before he even knew about meditation. Of course, he was also the Buddha. <laughs> but people do have those experiences. And all of that is to say is that within this intensity, Right? We, which we can go into as a little bit of a forced march. Right? It's good for us, but it's basically you know, just more, in a way, more pain and suffering, but for a good cause. It's not really a good way of thinking about it. So on the one hand, to not be afraid of the experiences of having a physical body in practice, in intensive practice, and to learn how to practice within those various states so we're not ruled by them. And we actually have moments where we see those shift 
and we realize that they are not fixed, they are not determinative. They don't have any intrinsic power. So when we're tired, that can seem like a, a set thing, a set piece. It's not. When we're tired, we can think that we're not able to be aware. That's not true. We can be, bring awareness to that tiredness, and it transforms, it changes. Awareness is always present. When we're not aware of it, we're just not aware that there is awareness. And it's in those moments of challenge that we increase our capacity, that we see that there is more, that the limits, the kind of boundaries that we come up against a lot in practice. And that as we come up against them again and again, they begin to solidify, they get stronger. We begin to think, oh, that's as far as I go. That's as far as my zazen is. And that's why intensive practice is important. So we sit through those experiences and have that experience of that changing. And even though that doesn't mean we can bring that you know, forward at will, it changes us because we know we've had the experience of a more expansive meditation, of a more expansive mind. We've had experiences of those apparent obstacles shifting and no longer being obstacles. And that creates a kind of confidence. And that's why we talk about having faith, practicing, and then verifying in ourselves. And there's nothing more powerful than our own experience. And so, as I said, it's a good time to forget about time. You can't be late. <laughs> and so we can move in and out of the zendo. We can move in and out of different forms of practice. We can explore, resting, waking. You know, we have so many ideas about what has to be. You know, it's like all the time, all the studies I've read about how much sleep we have to have. And all the studies I've read, and there may be others that are less like this, but seem very set. It never talks about, like, the people being studied. What are their lives like? What are their minds like? What are they doing with their minds? What are they doing with their attention? As though that doesn't matter. As though that doesn't affect us. Either in terms of draining us of our vital energy, or actually bringing in vital energy. And so in this, you know, in structured practice and in self-guided practice, we will inevitably encounter a lot of those ideas we have about the way things are. And the nice, the nice thing about the self-guided practice is it's you. And it's important for us to feel that, right? Because when it's more structured, when we're following a schedule, we can and inevitably will in certain moments externalize it, right? It's not necessarily coming from within. We're following the schedule. The whole point of that is for it to become internalized. We are moving ourselves. When the Han sounds, we are choosing to come in and sit. 
And with, the, with this kind of practice during the vigil, it just makes it so much more clear, right? And so to not worry about time, not worry about tomorrow, not worry about tonight, not worry about the next day. Your seat is here all the time. Your place of practice, come to it. Move back and forth, abandon yourself. Let go of notions of gain and loss, success and failure. Let go of the plan. Don't measure yourself against others. If you see others and they inspire you, good. Use that inspiration. But don't measure yourself against others. They're not you. Don't measure yourself against yourself. You're not fixed. I wanted to end with some words of Shantideva from his Guide to a Bodhisattva Way of Life in which he is raising bodhicitta. This most powerful force, which is to want to free ourselves. The Buddha Dharma recognizes how important that is within the Bodhisattva vow in which we are dedicating ourselves to serving others, how important it is that we free ourselves and that we want to do that. We be committed to doing that. We just don't, you know, put that in front of everything else. We just don't, you know, let that become myopic. We hold that up along with the vow to to help others. With joy, I celebrate the virtue that relieves all beings from the sorrows of the states of loss, joyfully, and that places those who languish in the realms of bliss, celebrating those qualities, those virtues, those precepts, those mind states. And I rejoice in virtue that creates the cause, that creates the cause, creates conditions of gaining the enlightened state and celebrate the freedom won by living beings from the round of pain. To joyfully rejoice, engaging in practice that changes the causes and conditions that allow us to enlighten our minds and that helps others to free themselves. It is a cause of joyful. joyful celebration of rejoicing. That intention, bodhicitta, that ocean of great good that seeks to place all beings in the state of bliss and every action for the benefit of all, that is my delight and all my joy. That every action that I take, every thought, my words, these most powerful forces that we all have and wield, that we dedicate all of those joyfully, to the benefit of all. My body, thus, and all my goods besides, everything that I have that is good, and all the merits I've gained, all my good karma, and that I will gain, I give them all away, withholding nothing for the benefit of others. Nirvana, cessation, enlightenment is attained by giving everything away. And nirvana is the object of my striving. That is my aspiration. That is my vow. That is what I am practicing. Everything, therefore, must be abandoned. 
to let go of everything. And it is best, as I let all of that go, to give it all to others. So that that profound desire to free ourselves doesn't become self-centered. Doesn't become just another self-clinging. Everything that I have, everything that I let go of, everything that I develop, cultivate, accomplish, continually giving that away to others. And that this most pure and spotless state of mind might be embraced and constantly increased, developed, cultivated, nourished, strengthened. The prudent who have cultivated it should praise it highly in such words as these. Those who understand should cultivate this and praise it in just this way. Today my life has given fruit. Today my life has become fruitful. This human state, so powerful, so fragile, has now been well assumed. I step into this life. I step into this body and mind. Today I take my birth in Buddha's line and have become the Buddha's child and heir in this long line of wisdom, of sanity. And then to remember, all that I possess and use is like the fleeting vision of a dream. It fades into the realms of memory and fading is never seen again. Right now, that's happening. We have come together, those of us here, some at home, and are creating causes and conditions. We're creating and changing those conditions that make this, make our practice propitious, powerful, and it is fleeting like a dream. Fades into the realms of memory and fading. We'll never see this again. This will never happen again. And even in the brief course of this present life, already so many friends and enemies have already passed away. And because of whom, both friends and enemies, the harms I have done, I carry with me. My regrets, my remorse. Because the thought came never to my mind that I too am a brief and passing thing. And so through hatred, greed, ignorance, I brought about harmful actions. Not knowing that I too am a brief and passing thing. Not being aware of my mind. Not being on a path. Not taking responsibility. All the while, never halting, night or day, my life is slipping, slipping by. And nothing that is cast past can be regained. And what but death could be my destiny. Of course, this life is finite. We know that. Do we? And so, remembering all of this, rejoicing in being able to bring all of this forward, to have this opportunity to have encountered the Dharma, to have this time, to have this hall, to have each other, and reflecting on the impermanence of all things, the very fleeting nature of this 
wonderful, beautiful, precious life. Reflecting on that, holding all of that. Shantideva says, and so now, from this day forth, I go for refuge to the Buddha. To all the Buddhas, those guardians of wandering beings, those teachers, those guides, who labor for the good of all that lives, those mighty ones who scatter every fear. The Buddha dedicated his whole life to teaching. He didn't have to do that. (laughs) I go for refuge to the Dharma that resides within their hearts and your heart too, my heart. That Dharma that scatters all the terrors of samsara, that frees us of our fear, of our grasping. And I take refuge in the multitude of bodhisattvas, the Sangha. Here I will take refuge. And so let's appreciate what Shantideva is offering us. To begin with rejoicing, with gratitude, with appreciation. And then so we don't get drunk on that. Right? In just feeling good, we remember what we should remember. We remember that things are fleeting. We remember that this life is impermanent. We remember that this time will not come back again. And then we take refuge. We bring all of that together and dedicate that very powerful, focused intention. Bring our attention to this time. There's a reason why bodhicitta is so important. There's a reason why there's so much, many teachings about how do we motivate ourselves? How do we bring forth the energy? All right. And how do we let that, draw that from a, from a deep place, a deep place of, of understanding the nature of what is painful? So that when we encounter the temptation of fleeting, temporary pleasures, self-indulgence, we can tap into that pain that those pleasures will not satisfy, will not take away. And that we can motivate ourselves to turn back in again. From Fukan Zazengi, Dogen says, You have gained the pivotal opportunity of this human form. Don't pass your days and nights in vain. You are taking care of the essential activity of the Buddha way. Who would waste or take delightful or take wasteful delight in the spark from a flintstone? It's already gone. Besides, form and substance are like the dew on the grass. The fortunes of life are like the dart of lightning, emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. It's already gone. Brilliant. Powerful. But it's gone already. Why would we take wasteful delight in these things? Dogen says, wasteful delight. Grasping. And so he says, please, honored ones, of the way. Long accustomed to groping for the element, do not doubt the real dragon. Devote your energies to the way of direct pointing at the real. Live in this way, and you will be such a person 
and the treasure store will open of itself and you may now enjoy it freely. And so as we conclude Fasatsu and just enter into this visual, let's remember these piercing words, these loving words from these great ancestors. And appreciate that we are that living link in this Dharma. And that it is practice and the revolution of mind that has brought it down to us. It's not the sutras. It's not the monasteries. It's not the forms of practice. It's lives changed. That's how it's come to us. And so that's why we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment by enlightening ourselves and each other. So let's really use this time well. Observe your mind. Observe your mind. And let that guide you. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.